Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is All of It. I'm Allison Stewart, live from the WNYC studios in Soho. Thank you for sharing part of your day with us. I am really grateful you're here. On the show today, we'll preview the spring theater season, which is packed with new musicals, revivals, our all-star plays. We'll also kick off this month's full bio conversation about the life of Althea Gibson, who broke the color barrier in tennis and sports. This hour, we're going to spend talking about how to help our youngest Americans, our young citizens. We'll speak with the author of If You See Them, Young, Unhoused, and Alone in America. So that is the plan. We'll get this hour started, though, with our Mental Health Monday segment on teens and anxiety. We continue our ongoing Mental Health Monday series with a conversation on how to support teenagers through their anxieties about the future. In a recent piece for the Upshot column in the New York Times, correspondent Claire Kane Miller reported on how the current generation feels apprehensive or anxious about politics, their mental health, and education prospects. A survey of 12 to 17-year-olds from the Children's Advocacy Group, Common Sense Media, showed that just one-third said that things were going well well for their generation. For teenagers, studies show the contributors to young Americans' current mental health issues include lack of independence, social and political climate, and cyberbullying. New York City is suing the companies that own TikTok, Instagram, and Snapchat, who they cite for a spike in mental health issues among young people. In a press conference last Wednesday, Mayor Eric Adams said, quote, instead of learning confidence and resilience, they are being exposed to content that often leads to insecurity and depression. Joining us to offer some insight on how to support the teenagers in our lives is Dr. Lisa Demore, a clinical psychologist and author of the New York Times bestsellers, Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood, Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls, and most recently, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers. You definitely should catch her podcast, Ask Lisa. Lisa, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It is always a pleasure to be with you. Listeners, we'd like for you to participate in this conversation. Are you a young person following the news? Are you a parent dealing with a teenager who feels the weight of the world right now? What resources or tools do you use to deal with anxiety about the future? How do you think we could help the young people in our lives remain hopeful that life can get better? Life does get better. Tell us your thoughts. Give us a call. Send us a text. 212-433-9692. 212-433-9692. WNYC. You may call in and join us on the air, or you can text to us at that number, or you can reach out on our social medias at all of it WNYC. You can DM us on Instagram if you'd like to remain anonymous. Maybe you have a question for Dr. Lisa Damore. So we decided to do this because it's a day off for a lot of families. A lot of times parents and kids are spending time together. Maybe there's some teenagers who are listening to us when they should normally should be in school. <laughs> or maybe, you know, they might be having lunch together at this time. So we thought this was a good time to have this conversation. Adults feel the stress and the strain with everything going on in the world. But what is something that's on the top of minds for teenagers and kids that maybe adults don't think about when it comes to taking on what's going on in the world? Well, I think the thing we want to bear in mind is that the things that we worried about as teenagers, today's teenagers still worry about as well, right? School, friends, romance, all of those things. 
but I'm 53. When I was a teenager, that pretty much took up all my bandwidth, right? My world sort of ended at wham. Like I was keep, keeping track of what George and Andrew were up to, right? I was not thinking about the big world beyond me. So our teenagers are both navigating the immediate, like what's right in front of them in their lives, as teenagers always will and always should. But this generation, unlike generations before, is also deeply aware, incredibly involved with big questions around politics and equity and privilege and justice and climate and, you know, education down the line. They are taking in so much more than we ever did. They are trying to metabolize so much more than we ever did. And so I just think we want to start from a position of appreciating that about them. That's really, you know, it's also, I talk about this with my sister sometimes. They also can't really get away from it. You know, if something bad happened at school, when we were kids, you and me, um, you left it at school or you left it on the playground. But now it can follow you on Snapchat. It can follow you on social media. It can follow you on Instagram. It's true. And that's true both for what's in their day-to-day lives and also what is in the world beyond. Because we are all getting our news all day long, you know, right to our pockets. Mm-hmm. Teenagers today are simultaneously aware of what everybody in their entire social world is up to, and they can find this information out at any point in the day or night, and they are also aware of whatever the latest headline was that just dropped. I mean, again, and, you know, we can think about this a lot, like, when we were teenagers, there was the morning paper and the evening news, that was it. And so even if we were invested in the world beyond ourselves, which I'm not sure I really was, to be honest... What I could get was limited. And and so I think we want to be mindful of how much teenagers are trying to take in in a day and how taxing it is for them. We're in an election year, which means news coverage about issues like immigration, cost of education. There are some that are just things that are just unavoidable. What are some opening conversations you could have with your children about the election cycle, particularly this election cycle, which is probably going to get really messy. Yeah. Well, I think number one rule is you start wherever your teenager is. If the thing that is most heavy on your teenager's mind is the test they have tomorrow, let that be the thing they get to focus on. But Mm -hmm. you can also say to your teenager, what are you thinking about this year? What are you, you know, are you tracking the headlines? Are you tracking the politics? Like, what are you thinking? You know, treat them as the insightful, thoughtful people that they are. Then I think for teenagers and for all of us, the challenge is to consume as much news as helps us to be informed and active citizens, but perhaps not so much news that we become overwhelmed and flattened by it. That we all need to find and teenagers need to find some place where we know what we need to know, know what we should know, and are active in our democracy, but not so much information that we feel like we're drowning and we can't get out of bed. What is, if we can role play for a minute, your kid comes to you and tells you something that they've seen on TikTok or on Instagram, and you know it to be not true. Mm. And it's it's from the news. It's from the news. And what's a way, because you know kids, as soon as you say that's not true, they're like, uh, the, the moment of like, what do you know, mom? What do you know, dad? Well, what I love about your scenario is by the time a teenager is running it by an adult, the teenager usually has their own questions. Mm. If teenagers believe it to be true, don't even doubt it, they're unlikely to check it with us. 
But one of the most beautiful and classic teenage moves is when they've got a doubt or they've got a question, they will run it by an adult. They'll say, so I saw this online or I heard that this was true. And the ideal response in that moment is for the adult to say, well, what do you think? Because then you are sort of following the teenager down that questioning road that they've already introduced. Now, if you blow it, and as the mother of teenagers myself, mm-hmm. I am very open to the possibility of blowing it because I do it all the time. <laughs> if you say, what? That's bananas. That can't possibly be true. And then your teenager adopts a defensive posture as they mm-hmm. are designed to do. You can recover. So take a beat. Go get a cup of coffee. Come back to your kid and say, you know what? I reacted really strongly. What I really should have asked is like, what did you think about that? Because if you were bringing it up with me, my hunch is you may have had your own questions. Sometimes it's hard to find an answer. I got this one the other day. I have a teenager as well. Sorry, I'm talking about you now. But it was a, he's a thoughtful, slight kid. And it was after the, suit, the shooting at the Super Bowl parade. And yeah. he just said, Mom, what's wrong with people? Mom, what's wrong with people? Mm-hmm. The world is messed up. Yeah. And that was a really hard question to answer. It is hard. It's so much easier when our kids put to us questions for which we have answers. I will say, though, because they are in some ways so clear-eyed and like have x-ray vision for the world, teenagers mm-hmm. will bring to us the intractable problems. And what I can tell you is that it is not nothing to say to them, I don't understand it either. I don't understand it either. Because here's what it's like to be a teenager. You doubt yourself a lot. You question Mm -hmm. whether you're seeing things right. If you're having a big negative reaction to a big negative thing, not only do you feel bad, you worry that something's wrong with you. If you can't make sense of something, you wonder, well, maybe it's just me and everybody else can make sense of it. So when a loving adult says, I am incredibly sad about this and I don't get it either. That actually is a gift to the teenager because what you're saying is your negative feelings are the right feelings and you're supposed to be having them right now. And there's nothing wrong with you that you can't wrap your head around this. It's one of those things that we can't seem to make sense of right now. That is huge for teenagers because they can feel isolated and they can feel alone. So they can continue to feel lousy. And a lot of this stuff is going to make us feel lousy, but they don't have to feel lousy alone. Let's take a call. Dana is calling in from Montclair. Hi, Dana. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. Hi. Thank you so much for uh, for having me. I, I um, you know, my kids are now in college and have had um, a lot of anxiety growing up. And one of the things that I feel has had a detrimental impact to their mental health is the fact that they are growing up from the time of the minute they enter school with active shooter drills, terrorism um, drills, hiding in closets, being told to be quiet. And I really think that that's had a tremendous impact. I remember once my daughter was in high school driving her to school and there were helicopters above and she was like wondering what's going on. Is there something, you know, is there something to be concerned of what's on the news and that's a constant, I, like it didn't occur to me, but it mm-hmm. occurred to her and she said she was thinking about it all the time. Dana, thank you so much. Just, yeah. yeah, did you want to add something else? No, I was just wondering if it was like to get your take on, on that as well. Dana, I'm so glad you're bringing this up. I hear this from teenagers too, that they're 
is psychological wear and tear that comes with preparing for the possibility of a shooting. And of course, the goal in those drills is to help kids feel safer, help kids be safer. But you are absolutely putting your finger on something that I hear from teenagers as well, that it then brings it very top of mind. It is very scary to do. And I have cared for plenty of teenagers who spend a lot of the school day listening very carefully for sounds in their building because they are anxious about the possibility of a very dangerous event at their school. So as we think about the world of um, keeping kids safe and how we go about it, we have to keep in mind that sometimes even our safety efforts have unintended consequences because it puts right in front of kids something that feels and is very frightening and very out of control. This follow-up is a text from Maria who says, I'm dealing with a 13-year-old girl who experienced COVID in New York City and feels the daily weight of the world on her soldiers. shoulders. So much is enhanced by social media. I'm so glad that Maria brought this up because I think sometimes we've, COVID feels like it's way far in the rearview mirror, and it's not. And mm-hmm. I'm curious from your practice and kid you talk to, what are some of the remnants of those early years of COVID, 2021, that we're starting to see some of the, the bounce back from that? Well, first of all, with regard to this young person, I think validating their experience that that was so big and so bad and went on so long. I, again, you know, the, the reality of being a young person is that your perspective on things is different. Your time frames are different. And so to have a loving middle-aged person say, I'd never seen anything like that in my life, right? That was, you know, you're having a strong reaction to that is actually appropriate. And it's important for us to say this to young people because they're so often wondering if it's okay to have a negative feeling, if it's okay to be upset about things. And of course it is. In terms of what we're seeing over time, the sort of long tail of COVID on social and emotional development in young people, there are a few things we're seeing. One is kids are rougher on each other than they used to be. You know, I've cared for teenagers for 30 years. There's always been bullying. There's always been conflict. We are seeing a very low tolerance for one another, kids who are quicker to be hard on one another. I will also say if they're watching the news, if they're watching the headlines, they're seeing adults actually often modeling behavior that's the kind of behavior we're not wanting to see in schools, right? So Mm -hmm. we are definitely seeing that. We are also seeing kids who are more likely to use avoidance as a strategy for managing anxiety. And this is problematic. Um, Avoidance is a great short-term solution to anxiety. If you're scared of going to school and you decide not to go, you feel much better. It actually ends up being a very, very problematic long-term solution to anxiety because the more you avoid, the harder it is to go back and confront the thing you've avoided. So we are seeing chronic school absentee absentee rates that are twice what they were before the pandemic. This is a huge issue. This is kids Mm -hmm. who are missing, I think, more than two days over the course of 10 days of school. I mean, it's it's a very, you know, significant loss of being in school. So I would say those two things, higher levels of conflict in terms of how kids are handling disagreements, and then um, using avoidance, either avoiding school, avoiding social things, avoiding work, avoiding tests, um, than we were seeing prior to the pandemic. We are discussing the anxiety that teenagers are feeling these days. 
Some of you have called in. We have some calls on hold. If you'd like to get in on this conversation, if you're a parent dealing with a teenager who is feeling the weight of the world on their shoulders, what resources or tools to use to deal with the anxiety? Maybe you would like to get Dr. Lisa Demore's opinion. How do you think we could help young people in our lives remain hopeful? Our phone lines are open, 212-433-9692, 212-433-WNYC. You may text to us that, to that number, or you may call in and join us on the air. After the break, we'll talk about the cost of education, we'll talk about climate change, and we'll talk about ways to help our students and our kids have stamina through this election cycle. Stay with us. You are listening to all of it on WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart. My guest is Dr. Disa, Lisa DeMore. You should listen to her podcast, Ask Lisa. Her latest book was called The Emotional Lives of Teenagers. She's helping us talk about some of the anxieties teenagers are feeling. You may have read that New York Times piece today's teenagers anxious about their futures and disillusioned by politicians. Someone texted to us, great conversations. Parents, adults need to work towards solving problems. Kids shouldn't feel it's up to them to solve the world's problems. I want to follow up on something you said before the break about the way kids deal with anxiety in ways that are um, perhaps unhelpful to them or un- and unhealthy. What's an example of something like that versus a kid who's just blowing off steam? Sure. So what we want is for kids to do the things that are in the typical range of things kids do, like go to school, go hang out with their friends, stuff like that. So if you have a kid who wakes up one day and is like, I am too anxious to go to school, that is something Mm -hmm. worth taking very seriously because they're supposed to be able to go to school. If they're using avoidance to manage their discomfort about going to school, and they may have something that's making them truly anxious, um, it will not work well over time because then the next day it's that much harder to return. So the goal when teenagers are wanting to avoid things that are in the expectable range of what they should do is to use what we call, technically we call it exposure. In real life, you can just call it baby steps, wading in. You can say, you know what, why don't you go for first period? Let's see how it goes. You know, why don't we get you there? I'll call the counselor, let them know you're having a hard day. They'll catch you when you get there. That um, even if they engage a little bit, even if they actually sit in the counselor's office for much of Mm -hmm. the day, that is actually better in the long term than your kid being home with you. And I think that's hard because as a parent, you love your kid, they're in a lot of pain. And so when they say, I can't go, I can't go, and we say, okay, you don't have to go, and they feel better, it feels like we're doing the right thing. But over time, it doesn't work so well. So we wanna be very careful about supporting Mm -hmm. avoidance as a strategy. Now, if your kid wants to avoid bungee jumping, that's fine, I don't care, right? Like that's not in the normal range of what we expect. But engaging in school, socializing, work, activities, those kinds of things, we want to urge kids to do those things, which may mean getting better at managing their anxiety. Mm. Um, Anxiety is uncomfortable, but it's manageable. And strategies like controlled breathing or challenging one's thoughts can help get anxiety down to a tolerable level. And another thing we can do with kids that can really help when they are having a hard time is to say, is it uncomfortable or is this unmanageable? Because basically what you're saying is we can work with uncomfortable. If, if I'm asking more of you than is fair, we will not do that. If it's unmanageable, we're not going to ask you to do that. But uncomfortable, the alternative, is acceptable. Not everything has to be comfortable for us to do it. Let's talk to Nick from Sunnyside. Hi, Nick. Thank you so much for calling in. Oh, no, thank you. Uh, no, I guess my advice to the teenagers out there, which is just context, 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 
because um, I mean, back in the late 90s, I mean, that hour bus ride from Whitestone to Malloy, I would just read the New York Times the whole time. And you learned about what was wrong with the world because, I mean, as opposed to seeing like a little TikTok video with, you know, unmentionable suffering, you were given the full history of the situation, how it started and where it was going all within, all, you know, all within minutes. And reading was relaxing, you know what I mean? And, and also, you know, TikTok, you're constantly being bombarded with advertising. You know, it's not like a pop-up ad is going to appear in the middle of the page. But, you know, it really helped. I mean, I remember coming home from 9-11 on, when I was 19 and not feeling any anxiety at all because I knew, I knew the full context of what had happened, the failure of the U.S. in a peacetime world. And, uh, you know, I was able to digest it. And it took away all the anxieties because I had put in the effort to read these full mm. articles and not really waste away my time with just uh, short-ended answers that I might not understood. And, you know, my mom was busy. I had to literally read those articles myself and digest them myself mm. because, uh, you know, who knew when she was getting home? So, you know, it could kill two birds in that respect. Nick, thank you so much. I'm hearing Nick say information, information helps. Yeah. And there's a couple of really key points, I think, in what he's saying. So first of all, psychologists actually like defenses. We talk about defenses as though they're bad, but defenses are actually internal mental mechanisms that help us to filter information and keep us from being overwhelmed. So when you talk about learning more about what's going on with any challenge we're facing, the defense is intellectualization, right? Like approaching it from a more you know brain perspective as opposed to a heart and mind perspective can give us a way to engage without getting totally overwhelmed. The other thing is that when any of us are getting our information through social media, the algorithms in social media are designed to show us things that are very, very um, intense because that helps us stay there. They will show us things in the same category over and over again and pull us deeper into rabbit holes. This is true for anyone looking at social media. And obviously, teens are a category where they're going to get a lot of their information. So there's nothing there. I mean, the beauty of like looking at a newspaper, right, is that you're looking across a number of categories. Nothing is pulling you any one way. Whereas the natural effect of the algorithms is it takes you deeper into something and more intensely into something which is not necessarily going to make it easier to make sense of or to take in. Let's talk to Natalie calling in from Manhattan. Hi, Natalie. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. My pleasure, my pleasure. My, my daughter is now a married woman with two beautiful children of her own, and when she was a little girl, that was the time of the big atomic scare and the nuclear war and so on, and she said to me, you know, Mommy, I'm so scared, I'm so scared. And I said to her, Honey, I'm scared too. But as long as we're together, we're going to be okay. And that seemed to really calm her down. And I really, I'm a psychotherapist. I think that it's so important to bring yourself into the conversation, to bring your feeling, to be very, very honest. And that gives them, you know, these children feel very isolated when you are not connecting to them in that way, not to just give them advice or, you know, try to calm them down, but to say how you feel, too. And I think that it was very, very helpful, and I would suggest that you talk about yourself, too, and how you're feeling about it. That's my, my suggestion. Natalie, um, do you have grandchildren? Yes, I have two grandchildren. One is 10 and one is uh, 12, two little boys. And um, my daughter is bringing them up in a very, very close, intimate way with her and her husband. Yes. What have you observed about the way they're experiencing the world? Well, I think that they, they're they so protected 
and they're so involved in sports and school and activities and, and the kindness and the time that my daughter and her husband spend with them that they feel a little detached. They're very much aware of world problems, of racism. You know, all, they, they talk about everything, uh, you know, in, in the house. Mm-hmm. But they don't feel personally close to those problems, you know, so that it's a, it's a, they, they're certainly not afraid of going to school and of being shot. That's the furthest thing from their mind because there are so many other things that they have to think about mm. in their lives, I think. Yeah. Natalie, thank you so much for calling in. I've got two texts that get to a, a big picture question. Uh, one says, my kid has always been anxious, but it's been much worse the last few years. She's very aware of the international situation and keeps asking about Russia and Ukraine. A few nights ago, she came in worried about World War III because of NATO exercises. I recall back to my own years growing up in the Cold War and fierce nuclear war. How do I help when the reality is really scary. There's someone else who texted in, I'm 18 now, been in climate activism since I was 11. I can't imagine the world lasting long enough for me to live past 40. How does one grapple with that kind of thing? wonder if Dr. Moore has any thoughts on climate anxiety. When you have issues that are very, very real and very present, that's where I think the connection is between those two, those two texts. Absolutely. And I will say, I mean, these are incredibly hard questions. If we, you know, adults struggle with the exact same questions. Here is an answer that is what I have. I will not say it is entirely adequate to the scale of these challenges. But one of the things that we have identified as psychologists when it comes to managing chronic stress, right? And I think that that's how we can talk about these, right? Chronic stress worries about um, war in the world, chronic stress worries about the outcome of the climate. Um, is that something that can help is to actually divide. What are the things I can control? What are the things that are beyond my control? And then to focus one's energy on the things one can control. So maybe being politically active, maybe voting, you know, be, you know, getting involved in those things, taking, you know, whatever steps one feels one can to make the changes mm-hmm. one wants to see. And then taking stock of what may be beyond our power. And there's always going to be something beyond our power. And that is an enormous challenge to, to face those things head on, to say these things may be beyond my power. But if we acknowledge them, it can actually help us not pour too much energy onto the things where we have no say and instead save that energy for where we have a degree of control. I want to talk about education because there's a couple of different, when you think about education, especially for teenagers, there's there's a couple different ways to think about it. There's the group that is completely stressed about getting into college and loading themselves up and overextending themselves and being in competition with their friends and peers. And there are kids who would love to go to college, but the cost is prohibited, prohibitive. So let's talk about those two different groups. The group of kids who feel intense pressure to get into college and to get into a certain kind of college or a college that someone in their family or their group has said, you need to go to this school. What advice would you give for this cohort that's trying to go to college and trying to stay sane while applying to college. And while applying to highly, highly selective colleges. I think the thing that can help is to talk in very blunt terms about the admission rates at these schools. So in the mid-70s, the admission rate at Stanford University was nearly 30%. It was actually around 30%. It is now 4%. And you can do that for all of the highly selective schools. 
I think being very clear-eyed about those statistics, that means 96% of students are being turned down and probably 98% of those are wildly qualified applicants. So with students who are trained, you know, in terms of their attention on very selective schools, I think it's okay to say, look, you can apply if you want to, but also go get yourself a lottery ticket um, down at the you know, drugstore. Basically, your odds are the same. It is not a reflection on who you are or what you've done or how hard you've tried. This is a numbers game at this point. So I think as long as everyone's clear about how little say even the most ambitious students have about where they find themselves, I think that can take some of the edge off of that experience. I think when students set their heart on a place or a family sets their heart on a school and then gives a young person the impression that if they just do this, that, and the other, they've got a good shot at that school, I don't think that's honest. I don't think that's fair. And I don't think that should be how we talk about these things. What about a kid for whom college seems financially prohibitive? What's something you can say to them? And what's something you probably should never say or avoid saying? I think... What I would say is the reality for young people for whom college is a financial challenge is that they have to do so much more work to get into college, right? Because they're Mm -hmm. not only doing the academics and the extracurriculars of high school, they are dealing with the extraordinarily complex and messy and murky universe of financial aid for schools. That said, there is financial aid out there. There are schools who want students. And so finding either within their high school or local resources that can help match students with schools that are you know, able to support them, eager to have them, um, I think is the key. All the while acknowledging it's just such an additionally large layer of work that we're asking for those kids and those families as they try to make a match with the college. We have a final text, which is interesting. Someone is texting, what about having teenagers watch stories of hope and inspiration? Is that helpful? I think it can be helpful. It also has to feel true and real. You know, the, the reality of teenagers, and this is why I love them so much, is that you cannot pull the wool over their eyes. They really see through things. And so I think giving them stories of people who have made important changes, who have done incredible things, like I'm thinking about your other story um, about Althea, you know, Mm -hmm. breaking barriers. I mean, I think those things are wildly inspiring and really important. But they also have to feel to teenagers like we're not trying to, you know, put on rose-colored glasses. We're not trying to minimize the painful realities that they do um, encounter and will encounter. Um, But I think we can actually try to bring some balance, that it can feel very overwhelming and very frustrating at times. But what we want to do, and this is actually a good place, I think, to sort of pull it all together. It's okay for teenagers to be anxious. There are things for them to be anxious about. And anxiety is what lets us know when something's wrong and gets us to pay attention. What we want to watch out for is irrational anxiety, where they're overestimating how bad something is and underestimating their ability to do something about it. So those stories of change can help to boost their sense of their capacity to make a meaningful difference, which can help to address their overall anxiety. You should listen to the Ask Lisa podcast. My guest has been Dr. Lisa Demore. Thank you so much, as always, for all your guidance. Thank you for having me. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. 
In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Mm-hmm.